Um, we are second sermon into a four sermon series looking at Gideon, looking at the power of God through the weakness of humans. So let's pray for we are all weak this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how we have heard from your words, how we have sung, how we have heard in the kids talk, um, how we have prayed, we have seen all of who you are in your greatness, in your goodness, in your salvation, in your love. We've seen our weakness, we've seen our need for you, our need for a saviour, for our deliverer, we, our need day by day for you to help us and to sustain us and to keep us going, to bring us through. And Lord, this morning as we continue to look at Gideon, the Israelites, and the Midianites, please speak to us. May we hear from you, remove all distractions, obstacles that will get in our way, Father, in, in our weakness. May you strengthen us. And in my weakness, please help me to preach your word faithfully. Amen. There was a, a pastor who, in getting ready for this Sunday sermon, found it very difficult to prepare and was a bit uncertain about exactly what he should say. On the one hand, he, had preached, he was preaching a very difficult text. There were complicated issues there. And it's not that he didn't believe what the Bible said, but he wasn't quite sure what it meant and how it worked out in real life. Often in his own experience, these things just didn't always seem to be true. And we can ask God to prove himself. This is really true. On the other hand, he was afraid of what people might think, how they may respond to the hard truths he had to say. Was his sermon going to be any good? Could he explain difficult bits? Could he preach with real conviction and confidence? It had been a busy week, so he didn't give as much time to prep as he, as he wanted to. And, and as he got up to preach, he was filled with fear and doubt. But then at the end of the sermon, people came to him and said, well, that was really good. Thank you. You helped me. You gave me confidence. You pointed me to Jesus. And, and then he felt really good about himself. That was, that was really good. He thought, through all the struggles and all the hardships, I, I was able to overcome. I got myself through it. And he felt proud. He thought, I'm, I must be a good pastor, a good preacher, because it was a hard week, but yet I had a successful sermon. Do you know the name of that pastor? Dan Still. <laughs> no, no, no. Andy Taylor. Actually, it's the experience, I'm sure, of every preacher who gets up to preach a sermon. And you know what? In some respects, in different ways, in different contexts, at different times, it's all of us. It's you and it's me. Not that we all get up and preach, but that all of us in different ways are guilty of doubting God's word. We're fearful of the situations and circumstances that we face, failing to trust the Lord. But then when we come through difficult circumstances, when we, when we conquer those difficulties, we are so quick to congratulate ourselves, aren't we? We think that it's all down to us. And so doubting God's word, fearing circumstances, boasting in success, these are all issues that face Gideon and the Israelites in our passage this morning. And, and the Lord teaches them a lesson 
And I pray that he teaches us a lesson too this morning to know that salvation is all of the Lord, that the strength and the power to live the Christian life is all by him. So we don't need to doubt, and we don't need to fear, and we certainly have no right to boast. If you were here last week, you will remember we left Gideon, verse 32 of chapter 6. God had called him, raised him up to be the leader of Israel to fight against the Midianites. Gideon is the unlikely candidate, and he was filled with fear and, and doubt and And yet God had proved himself to Gideon through that sacrifice. So now he was ready to go against the Midianite camp. That vast army that every year for seven years had come to destroy the crops, if you remember from last week. And now they were come to Jezreel. Here they are across the Jordan, settling in Jezreel. As we see in verse 34, Gideon calls out people from all the different tribes, and they all gather together there. I hope the map would help you to visualize and picture this scene as Gideon is set to go. The Lord has called him. He's filled him with his spirit, verse 34. He's confirmed with signs. So what's the problem? Doubts. Let's read from verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, bowl full of water. And then he goes on again, doesn't he, in the next couple of verses to ask God to do the same thing, to repeat it but the opposite. And so God complies, proving that it's true, that his word is true. He will do what he said he will do. How much proof does Gideon want? Fleecing, it's not a method of seeking guidance. Here it is evidence that he doubted what God had said. Why does he doubt? But why do we so often doubt I think two things, two reasons. I think one, partly to do with how well Gideon knows the Lord. If you look back again at what we just read, Gideon said to God, verse 36. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God. Verse 40, that night God did so. God is referred to as God. It's just a general name for God. Not the Lord, not Yahweh, this special covenant name for the God of Israel. I think the author is telling us that Gideon is still a little unfamiliar with who exactly he is talking to. And we know as Christians that as we read the Bible, that is how we get to know who God is. We get to know what he's like. We learn about what he's done for us. And all of these things are so important. The reason we study Books like Judges that seem so alien to us is that because they teach us more about who God is and what he's like and what he has done. And they deepen our understanding. They broaden our knowledge of the Lord, which leads us to trust in him, to have faith, to follow him. Think about it. When you read the Bible, the more you read the Bible, you see examples and examples of, of God, 
of all that he has done as he works through his people. And you'll know that God's people were supposed to pass on all that God had done to tell their children and their children's children. But often we read in the Bible too that there are whole generations that grow up who don't know the Lord. And Gideon's generation is one of those. They've heard of the great things in Exodus, yeah, a long, long time ago. But yet they're a little bit confused about who God is now and what he does. Is he really around? Does he really care? And this is why teaching the Bible is so important. Especially to our children, children who are growing up hearing so many negative things about the Bible. It's great to have the young people with us this morning at the back. We can't take it for granted and we need to teach everybody about the Lord. But of course, even the most knowledgeable people can still doubt and can still fear. We read the Bible and we know the story so well and we've seen him work even in our own lives. But yet, I'm sure we'd all agree that there are times, there are circumstances, there are new tasks to be, to be accomplished where we doubt and we fear. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, is that Gideon secretly thinks it's all about him. We doubt God's word because we think that we have something to do with it. God has said time and time again to Gideon that he will save. But we think, but well, surely we have a part to play too. What if it goes wrong? What if I'm not good enough? God says in the Bible that he will be with us. But we fear making decisions about the future. God says, I will give you the words to say. But we doubt that we'll make the difference. We fear what we'll be able to say to our non-Christian friends and they're never going to be saved if we don't say the right things. God says, I will help you. But we fear that we're not good enough to serve in the church. We don't have the best character or the right skills because we think it's all about us. But we can be rest assured that whatever we face, and certainly in our salvation, it is not of us, but it is of the Lord. It is Jesus. Jesus, unlike Gideon, didn't doubt God's word. He was one who remained faithful and trusted and obeyed, even when he faced fears and temptations. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, it is not my will, but yours be done. God's word is true. We do not need to doubt it or be afraid of our circumstances. So Gideon is confident. He's had many, many confirmations from the Lord. He's ready to go out to defeat Midianites. But his confidence, I think, then leads to the second problem, and that is boasting. As we enter chapter 7 of Judges, Gideon knows that the Lord has given him victory. But God knows that there's great temptation to boast in Israel. And so, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moriah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. 
See, the Lord knows the human heart. He knows how quick we are to boast and to congratulate ourselves. And so he wants them to be absolutely certain that their victory is not going to be of them. So it's now time for a bit of maths. Okay, so those of you with calculators in your brain, you can help me out here. In, verse, in chapter 8, we will learn that there are 135,000 Midianites compared to 32,000 Israelites. So even before there are any reductions, the Israelites are outnumbered by, anybody know? Four to one. Four to one, that's all right, isn't it? But let's see what God says. First three, the Lord says, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Now the army is at what? It's a bit harder. <laughs> 13 to 1. Now perhaps 4 to 1 might have been okay. You know, we could, we could claim victory with that. You know, we only have to kill four people each. But 13 to 1 is a bit more tricky. Perhaps if you had Jack Bauer or Legolas from Lord of the Rings, we'd have a chance. But the Lord is not finished. He wants there to be no question that in human power, we could, they could win. And so verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, you still have too many men. The grand old Duke of Gideon had 10,000 men. He marched them down to the riverside and then lost 9,700. <laughs> and God said, verse 5, when I say this one shall go, he shall go. This one shall not go, he shall not go. And when they've all finished, they have 300. And it was all to do with lapping like dogs or kneeling down to drink. Do you notice that in verse 6? 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like do dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. As one preacher said when preaching this in his sermon, you can imagine one of those guys going home to his wife and his wife saying, what are you doing here? I have no idea. I was on my knees taking a drink. Gideon patted me on the back and said, go home. And friends, that is it. There's nothing special. There's nothing spiritual about how God reduced the numbers of the men. It's just a way for him to reduce the army to a number so small that there can be no doubt that salvation is of the Lord. And so our final ratio, 135,000 to 300. <laughs> what was that? 450 to 1, says the maths teacher. Poor Gideon. He had just gained confidence to trust in the Lord for victory, but surely now it is absolutely crushed. And he's thinking, God, why didn't you send home the 300? But I think, obviously, God has a purpose. And for Gideon and for Israel, it's because they were thinking about themselves. Remember Gideon's request for signs, for signs, for signs? Verse 36 of chapter 6, If you will save Israel by my hand... 
He's fearful about what will happen to him. He's focused on himself. And so God brings him to a point. He brings Israel to a place where they have to completely rely on the Lord's power, not their own. Do you know what that's like? I'm sure many of you do. Similar to last week, isn't it? God exposes weakness in us so that we throw ourselves onto him. It's the whole lesson of the Gideon story. God's power in human weakness. God saves us in our weakness and we cry out for a deliverer. We need him. And he is merciful and gracious. Yet the human heart is so quick to congratulate ourselves, to give ourselves a pat on the back, rather than giving praise in the times when he does deliver us. Maybe you're somebody who's raised children and they're, they're really good children, one's successful professional, one's raising their own family, happily married, another is a missionary. What great kids to be proud of. And you think, yeah, we did a good job. But then you think about it and you think, man, I could never have helped my kids through those hard situations in life. And of course, it was nothing to do with me, the fact that they've become Christians. Perhaps you're in a situation facing circumstances and you feel like Gideon. God has stripped away everything. All temptations for self-confidence. Maybe through failure, through difficulties, exposing weakness. The size of the problem just so huge, you feel so overwhelmed in human terms. You're looking for work and you keep getting rejected at interviews. You're in pain and struggling with health. You face problems at work, complicated relationships. There's no answer and you need God to bring a miracle. You need him to step in, to intervene for him to save. Perhaps God has brought you to a point where you need to stop trying in your own efforts. Stop fearing failure. Stop fearing people. It's not about your ability. It's not about your skills. Lean on him. See him at work through your weakness. Well, how are Gideon and Israel going to defeat the Midianite army? The power of God. The genius power of the Lord through his deliverer, Gideon. I want us to note uh, three steps in the Midianite defeat. Firstly, God puts fear in the Midianite camp. Let's read from verse 8, verse 8b. God puts fear in the Midianite camp. Now, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servants, Purah, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. Verse 13. Gideon arrived just as the, a man was telling his friend a dream. I had a dream, 
he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelites. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given Midianite camp into your hands. After all the doubting of God's word by Gideon, God now puts doubt into the hearts of Midian through the dream. Dreams are import, were important in those days and their meanings were taken very seriously. And so the Midianites were terrified that God, again a general word, whoever this God is, he is now no longer on the Midianite side, but he is on Israel's side. A fear induced by the Lord, of course, will be instrumental in victory, we'll see in a minute. But do you notice all the irony? On the one hand, God's word in a dream is believed straight away by Midianites. When Gideon doubted it time and time again. But on the other hand, Gideon wouldn't believe God's word when spoken directly from his mouth. But yet he believes it when spoken from the Midianites. How sad. Yet Gideon believes and he bows down and he worships. And so he heads back to the camp and they begin preparations. And so the second step, second step is Gideon's tactics for the battle. Gideon's tactics for the battle. Look down at verse 16. We we don't have time to, to read all of this, but please follow the story as we go through. The Israelites are divided into three groups of 100, as you'll see, and they spread out around the Midianite camp. Remember, there are 135,000 of them, 300 Israelites. They're on higher ground. Perhaps the element of surprise will help. But having said all that, do you notice that the narrative says nothing about weapons? Verse 16, Gideon gave them trumpets and empty jars with torches inside. It seems more like carol singers with their candles and their instruments. But Gideon says, follow me. In verse 18, when I and all those who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So when this happened, verse 20, they all blew their trumpets, smashed their jars, of course, releasing the light, shouted, picture the scene. Imagine you are a Midianite soldier. You're in the camp, safe and sound asleep. There's dark, there are no street lights. You're in the company of 135,000 friends and camels and tents. Yes, you've heard the dream and you're a bit concerned about what that means, but there are guards on patrol. When all of a sudden there's loud trumpets, hundreds of lights appearing all around you. You're completely surrounded by what you probably think is hundreds and thousands of Soldiers, it's an ambush. It's great strategy. It's genius thinking. How to confuse the enemy 
without doing anything. And of course, it's not the the last time, the only time that God does this in the Bible. I wonder if it's why the police do their drug raids in the early hours of the morning, because criminals do not expect it. Great tactics by God's chosen deliverer. So then thirdly, the third step in victory is the Midianites turning on themselves. And we see that, don't we? Verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused all the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And they all fled in different directions, those who hadn't been killed. Success. Victory, and no sword, at least to this point, has been used. God has won a great victory for the, for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon, but yet it's the sword of the Midianites that does all the killing. 120,000 of them, as we'll see in chapter 8. The Lord has won his victory. Gideon God's chosen deliverer has won when all the odds were stacked up against him. Of course, there's more to the story. And Charlie will take us through that next week. But the victory gives us confidence, gives us confidence in the word of the Lord. That his promises are true, that he has won the victory. And when Israel is brought to their knees, when their fears are exposed, when they can do nothing but completely rely on the Lord and trust in his strength to bring them through. And we can praise the Lord for that. And we can praise the Lord that, that throughout history, his word has been true. God has brought deliverance. And ultimately, we can look back at Jesus at that greatest victory on the cross, the word of God in flesh. Jesus said it is finished. It is all accomplished. So there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing we can do to add to what Jesus has already done. There's no work, no skill, no experience, no character or personality that is good enough to make us right in God's eyes. And of course, there's no work that's bad enough to make us bad in God's eyes. Nothing we can do to limit his salvation. No amount of sin. No problem too hard that he can't overcome. No doubt too great that he can't encourage us through. There's no circumstance too difficult that he can't sustain us in. And so we don't need to doubt. And we don't need to fear. And when he helps us, and we come through, if we come through, it's all been of him. So friends, if you are trusting, if you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then don't doubt his word. The Lord Jesus has done it on the cross. Don't fear what people will think, because this matter is far too important. Don't ask for more evidence. There's plenty. There's more than we need for us to trust in the Lord. Students who are having a mission week this week, when you face opportunities to, to share your faith, have confidence in the word of God to do its job. 
Don't fear how people will respond, but pray that he would give you the words and that he, by his spirit, would be at work in the hearts of students. Church, as we await the outcome of the Irving process, with time dragging on and other bidders coming in and conditions changing, let's not doubt, let's not fear, but trust the Lord. For all of us, as, as we seek our place in how we serve in the church, as we struggle through difficult circumstances, let's look to him, not to ourselves. Let's see our weakness, but trust in his strength. Trust that he will help us, that he will hold us fast. And that when we do see the Lord at work, when he brings us through, when he provides for us, let us be quick to give thanks, quick to praise, quick to point people to the Lord, so that he may get the glory. Let's pray. Before wonderful stories like Gideon, events that happened such a long, long time ago, so far, far away, where you are the same God, you are the same Lord, who was at work then and is at work now, was at work through the Lord Jesus, as he gave his life to save us from the greatest enemy of all, our sin. We thank you for that wonderful power that is able to save us, even us. For the power that is at work within us, for the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now with us as your Holy Spirit helps us and equips us, comforts us, works with us. Please, Lord, help us day by day as we face life to trust in you. Father, Lord, if we are feeling very exposed this morning in our weakness, in our need for you, help us not to doubt, help us not to fear, help us trust. And Father, if we are prone to, to boast, Father, show us, show us by our weakness that it's not of us. And all of these things, we give you praise and we give you glory and we pray that your glory will be seen throughout the world. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing that. For when we are weak, he is strong. Pray as we stand. Uh, well, Father, there we are. <laughs> We're prone to doubt at your word. Of course we are, so we pray that this week uh, you'd help us uh, not to doubt in your word and not to doubt in you. And Father, of course, we're prone to boast in success. And so we ask again that you would help us not to boast in ourselves, in our efforts, in our abilities, in our successes, but to boast only in the great gospel. And Father... Please, too, help us to trust that salvation 
is of the Lord. It's from you. It's not of ourselves. It's because of sheer grace. And help us to live this week in light of that. Celebrating it with joy. Professing it with our lips and our lives. And basking in it. And we thank you all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, do take a seat. That's the end uh, of our service. The formal part of this morning, uh, teas and coffees will be served uh, from the hatch uh, over there. So please do uh, stay around. Anything uh, that you want to chat to Andy about in regards to what he said, um, please do find him out too. And if you